We invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll begin reading in a moment in verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. You'll recall that Peter writes to a group of people he calls exiles. They are Jewish people who have converted to Christ and because of the persecution of the Roman government have been forced out of Israel and now they're in the region then called Asia Minor. Today we just simply call it Turkey. The entire nation of Turkey comprises Asia Minor. And they are living in a foreign place, foreign culture, foreign language, foreign foods, foreign everything. And in the midst of all of that, they are persecuted there. It turns out they left the frying pan and jumped into the fire. We've all been there. But in spite of that, the exhortation of 1 Peter is that we are to make our lives significant for Christ. We are not to somehow uh, throw everything in neutral or worse, throw everything away. We are indeed to push forward and to serve Christ as he has ordained our lives. And so in the last couple of um, weeks, we have looked at uh, a couple of challenges. He specifically challenged these dear people to submit to authority, and specifically the emperor is named. Submit to the authority of the emperor. Well, the emperor in Rome is the one who's caused them to leave their uh, ancestral lands and homes and livelihoods and culture and flee to a foreign country. So why would anybody suggest that we should honor that guy? And he went from there to servants and masters and for uh, all that we think in our country about slavery. Why would anybody uh, honor their master? Why, why would that be something that somehow is the definition of a Christian? And then last week we saw how he's challenging wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to care for their wives, to live with their wives in an understanding way. He's dealt with that. So he's been very specific with these various groups but now here in chapter 3 and verse 8, he's going to broaden it and say, finally, all of you. So maybe you're not married. Maybe you're not a slave. Maybe you're not uh, a person who feels the sting of the emperor uh, over your head. But nonetheless, the Bible speaks to our lives. So we're going to read this section of Scripture, beginning in verse 8 down through verse 17, and I hope we'll be helped. Let me preface it by saying something else, and that is that if you're to poll uh, this crowd or any other crowd of, of like-minded people and ask them, you know, what constitutes a righteous life? Almost invariably, the answers are going to be the Ten Commandments. Now, by the way, the Bible is pro-Ten Commandments. Don't hear me say anything to the contrary. So don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. And oh yeah, that last commandment that nobody pays any attention to, don't covet your neighbor's Corvette <laughs> or whatever. But most people define righteous living as staying away from big stuff. You know, everybody's got a short temper. Everybody's got a sharp tongue. Everybody's, you know, gets tired and ill and hard to live with. Everybody, everybody. And whatever you fill in your everybody with, 
we don't consider any of those sins as worthy of hell. And the culture doesn't believe it, and we don't believe it. And yet, it turns out that the Bible has much to say about things that are not in the Ten Commandments. And today we're going to read a couple of paragraphs that are going to get in your business. And I hope you're listening. Let's read, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So I'm going to summarize these uh, two paragraphs with just two sentences. So here they are if you want to take notes. Well, here they are if you don't want to take notes. Number one, live like a Christian. That's the first thing he says, live like a Christian. And secondly, don't mistake your suffering for a mistake. Don't mistake your suffering for a mistake. And they're tied together by this theme. If you live like a Christian, you're probably going to suffer. And don't mistake your suffering for a mistake. So you'll note how he begins, verse 8, a series of imperatives. He's commanding here. Finally, all of you, and then he comes up with five rapid-fire words or phrases. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now these are unique words in the language of the Bible. Only one of these words is used anywhere else in the New Testament. The other four of these five, uh, this is the only place in the Bible they're used. That is significant because he is layering these things, challenging them perhaps in ways that maybe they haven't heard. And I suspect some of us Likewise, would say, you know, I've never really thought about it that way. I've never really been confronted with that. If so, you're probably in good company. Think about these quickly. Have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Now, unity does not mean uniformity. Good news, nobody here is like me. 
glory. <laughs> Nobody here is like you. We are not the same. We don't come from the same place. We don't have the same values. We don't root for the same football team. Did I mention football? <laughs> we don't care for the same anything. I married Susan years ago. And she has trained me that all the foods that once were good are terrible. I jest. Only half the foods I thought were good are terrible. <laughs> but we are to have unity of mind. You know, the reality is we all want the same thing. If you're here and you want to go to heaven, you're in good company. If you're here and you want to live a good life and have a good life, you're in good company. If you're here and you, you want to live a life that's not shameful or not destructive, you're in good company. If you're here and you want to be someone that other people respect, you're in good company. We all want that. So we do have unity of mind, but it has nothing to do with much of that. Clearly going to heaven, yes. Unity of mind about the things that provide unity of mind. In the end, what defines us is our allegiance to Christ. That's the thing that defines us. So I don't care about your football team. Yours won, mine won. Big. But who cares? Say, well, you mentioned it twice in the last 30 seconds. Yeah, but I don't care. Nobody cares. At the end of the day, who cares? Only those boys who are playing. We come together this morning, and we've got other things on our mind. We've got real things on our mind, things that matter. We're not tying our identity to what's going on in some bunch of 20-year-olds. Apologies. <laughs> We're not. Just not. Having said that. The Bible says we're to have unity of mind and sympathy. Sympathy. Now, you, you just list, think about the people in your life for whom you are sympathetic. You usually start with your family. If you don't, come see me afterwards. We need to chat. If you don't default to your family, that's a problem. So whoever your family is, you default to them. You are sympathetic to them. You want to give them a little extra rope. You want to be a little more kind to them, a little more patient with them, a little more long-suffering and understanding. We get that. But that's not the problem here, because the problem is some of us have a real short sympathy list. And everybody else, we're a cynic, or we're a critic, or we're highly judgmental or prejudicial toward them. And they're not our people. Well, the Bible rebukes that. Turns out, if that's who you are, that's not Christian. It turns out that's a sin. It turns out that's such a sin, it will send you to hell. <laughs> yeah, we're sicker than we thought we were. We're sicker than we'll admit we are. We're in denial, some of us. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. The Bible actually expects us to love people genuinely. And to have a tender heart, a tender heart, not a hard heart, not a cold heart, not a brittle heart, not a 
stone, heart of stone, but rather a tender heart. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Walk in their shoes a minute. Lighten their load. How can I help? What can I do? Get out of the bubble or the cocoon of your own narcissism, friend. and Find a way to be tender to people. And a humble mind. It turns out that if we actually do practice genuine biblical humility, these other things just sort of fall into place. Paul said as much in Philippians 2, we're to have this mind in Christ rather than ourselves, which is also in Christ, who although he was God, humbled himself. So you say, well, I, I don't really want to humble myself to him or her or them or those, to which I say, well, aren't you glad that God humbled himself to you? Yeah. Yeah, you are. So have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You know, this is so illogical to our flesh. It's so counterintuitive to the way that many of us have chosen to live our lives. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them back, or worse. Somebody reviles you, mocks you, criticizes you, you retort, you respond, you, you lash out, and you, you say, oh yeah, and your mother wears combat boots, or something like that. That's an old line, some of you won't get it, but it's been around. And somehow we think that we're going to get into a war of words and we're going to win. Turns out, you're not going to win. And neither is Jesus. On the contrary, he says, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very important phrase that, that we just really, you're not going to give me enough time to tell you all that that matters, but let me just, let me give you the short version of it. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. What's going on in God, in the Bible? The Bible is all about the rescue or the redemption of people who are not experiencing the blessing of God. They have no future. Their future is in shreds, in tatters. And the reason they are is because they are living like this. They're not, they're not honoring God. They're, they are not blessing. They are returning evil for evil. They don't have unity of mind. They don't have sympathy. They don't have brotherly love. They don't have a tender heart. They don't have a humble mind. They are not walking in the ways of God. You say, well, I thought the ways of God were the Ten Commandments. It is, but it's not all that it is. It turns out that God actually cares about what's going on boiling right now in your own heart. He cares about the affections of your heart. He cares about those things that matter to you, the, inter the internal issues of your own life. God cares about those things. And the problem is we are universally problem-filled. The heart is wicked. Who can know it? So we don't even trust one another to self-diagnose. 
People say all the time, you know, God and I are good. <laughs> well, if you and God are good on any basis other than the fact that his son is good and you're trusting in his son, you're not good. The only hope you have is in Christ. Because what's in you and only you and exclusively you is the same thing that's in all the rest of us. And that is that we want to res respond evil for evil. We want to revile when we're reviled. We don't care about brotherly love. We don't care about a tender heart. We just want to be judgmental and hard, hard to deal with. We want to be cynics. We want to be critics. And we want to say at the end of the day, there may be one righteous person in the world, and if there is, it's me. That's what our flesh wants to say. And the Bible is all about saving you from that. So, God calls you that you may obtain a blessing. And here's how you obtain a blessing. You bless. It turns out that in order to obtain a blessing, God expects you and I to bless. He expects us to live like his children. Having become his children, we are to live like his children. Remember, we're now reading 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 describes your salvation. So by this point in this letter, he's assuming he's talking to people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, Chapter 3 is the so what to chapter 1. You're a Christian, so what? Have these things characterize your life. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Don't return evil for evil. And oh, by the way, bless. Because God called you, friend, to be a blessing so that you might obtain one yourself. You want to unravel the Bible by pulling a thread. Well, here's a thread. Trace what the Bible means by the word blessing. Blessing is a very common word in our lingo. You know, people say, I'm too blessed to be stressed. That's completely bogus. Right? We're all major stressed. We all got issues. We all got problems. And if you don't have them today... Come walk with me. I'll share a few of the people that I'm talking to. There, you can help them carry their burdens. And you'll, you'll feel the stress. There are some issues that are just far beyond regular complexities. We've got to deal with these. We've got to figure out how to help people, how to serve people, how to strengthen people. Because if we don't, they're not going to experience all that God has for them. The way that we do that is we become these kind of people. People who say, I want to be sympathetic to you. I want to show brotherly love. I want to have a tender heart to your troubles. I want to have a humble mind. This is not about me. It's about the will of God and the word of God. So you can unravel this word blessing. Most of us think that when we use the word blessing, we're thinking about temporal things. You know, I, I got a new job. I got a new car. I, I, I got a new relationship. I've entered into, uh, got a little money. I, 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 I got separated from some tragedy or hardship. And, you know, my life is good now. Or, or I, you know, I've, I've, I've had a challenge and now that challenge has been removed. I prayed about something and God intervened in this situation. That's what we typically think about. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm blessed. And by the way, that's fine. I'm not 
suggesting that's inappropriate. But more often than not in the Bible, that's not the way the Bible uses the word blessing. It includes that way, but more often than not, the Bible talks about the fact that your ultimate blessing is your rescue from the dumpster fire of your life. You say, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that great. Okay, forgive me. Find another word. But if this isn't characteristic of your life, then there are issues maybe you're in denial about. Brotherly love, tender heart, unity of mind. You were called to bless so that you may obtain a blessing. Do you have the hope of eternal life? That's really what he means by the word blessing. Do you have the hope of heaven? I would suspect that most of us do. I would ask you, how important is that to you? And I would suggest most of us would say, it's, it's number one. And it should be. Well, the only criteria offered here in this paragraph to obtain a blessing is that you be a blessing. Go be a blessing. It's the old neighbor question. Lawyer came to Jesus wishing to justify himself. Lord, who is my neighbor? Jesus told him a story and said, now which one of these was a neighbor? He never did answer his question. Who is your neighbor? That's not the question. Wrong question. The better question is, what is it like to be a neighbor? Well, I guess it was the one who showed sympathy. I guess it was the one who had a humble mind. I guess it, the, it was the one who showed brotherly love. Yeah, that's right. Sherlock, you got it figured out. It turns out if you're blessed, you get to obtain a blessing. How important are these things? Well, these are not the big ones. You know, it's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not stealing. But it turns out how you live your life matters. Live like a Christian. That's his exhortation. Now, what's interesting here in verse 10, he quotes Psalm 34. You may not remember this, and if so, that's fine. I won't stew about it long. But back in chapter 1, he referenced Psalm 34 indirectly. Rather, chapter 2, verse 3, he says that you may grow up like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that you might grow, by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When we covered that section, I said that he's probably alluding to the only place in the Bible where that phrase is used, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. And oh, by the way, here it is now in chapter 3, and he quotes three verses of Psalm 34. So he says, whoever desires to love life, and who doesn't, see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But, to the, face, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who are those who do evil? Well, those who let their tongue loose. Let their tongue go where it will. Say what they say. Well, you know, I'm just committed to the truth. I just have to speak the truth. You know, I'm so proud, I just speak my mind. 
Well, we wish you wouldn't. Your family wishes you wouldn't. Your family wishes you'd major not on your tongue, but rather on your heart. Maybe Peter had Proverbs 20 and verse 22 in mind. There we read, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. He will deliver you. Or maybe he had Proverbs 17, 13 in mind. If anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Or maybe he was thinking about what the Apostle Paul had written in Romans 12, verse 17, where Paul said, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What did Psalm 34 say? Whoever desires to love life and see good days, stop letting your tongue say whatever it wants. Stop criticizing. Stop condemning. Stop spewing words of anger and hate and malice and slander, gossip. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil because a tongue, the tongue has the power to unleash all kinds of evil. Read James chapter 2 where he talks about how the tongue ignites an entire forest fire. And some of us are living epistles of what the tongue can do to damage and hurt and wound. And some of us are carrying wounds of other people's words. By the way, the Bible says there's no future in carrying yesterday's wounds. Stop doing that. It's not a merit badge you get to carry around. Yeah, but I got hurt last week. Not trying to be insensitive here, friend. But if you live long enough, you're going to get hurt next week. And if your mission in life is to keep score of how many times you've been hurt, then you're not being faithful to these exhortations either. You don't have a tender heart. You don't have a humble mind. You have a scorekeeping heart. You have an arrogant mind. It's not to suggest that our sorrows are not real. It's not to suggest that our pain is not pain. It's not to suggest that people have not done us wrong because they clearly have. The exhortation here is for us to recognize that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And who are the righteous? The ones who do not return evil for evil. The ones who do not act like the world. It turns out, let me say it a different way. That you may think that the ultimate test of a Christian is some big thing. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, or I did, or I did, or I did, and some big thing. As it turns out, every last one of us who are Christians, the main thing we need to take care of are these things. They're the regular things. They're the basic things. They have nothing to do with how many mission trips you've been on, how much money you've given, how many prayers you've prayed. How many times you've done any of these supernatural, spectacular things or whatever your scorecard looks like? Forget that for a minute. Humble mind. You can do that with God's help. Brotherly love. How important is that? 
So much so, listen, the eyes of the Lord are on the one who practices brotherly love. The eyes of the Lord are on the one who practices sympathy. The eyes of the Lord are on the one who practices a tender heart and a humble mind. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Evil being defined as those who return evil for evil. He quotes Psalm 34 because he's trying to make sure that we see that Christian people are not merely defined by some big deal or some big deeds. Christian people are defined by the moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, life on life that God has called us to live. If you're not kind, then you're in disobedience. If you're not long-suffering, that doesn't mean you let people get away with being irresponsible or, you know, tolerate sin in other people's lives. There's a way to handle that. We haven't read all the Bible. We've only read two paragraphs. But if you're not long-suffering, if you, if you don't look at people and see beyond what they are and pray for them that God would help them to become more than what they are, then we're in disobedience. The flesh does all these things. Listen, the world does all these things. We are called to be different. So live like a Christian. That's the way I summarize the first paragraph. Let me go on to the second one quickly. He asked the question rhetorically in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now this is a rhetorical question. And it means, it's spoken in different ways in our culture today. We don't use this terminology. Instead, we use questions that go something like this. Well, I did the right thing, and it turned out bad. Or, why do bad things happen when I'm trying to do the right thing? Or, you know, I have been faithful, and this is what I get. So that's the question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Hmm. That's a fair question. Now, for the most part, we would answer the question, no one. Who's going to harm you if you do the right thing? No one. The police aren't going to arrest you. You know, the government's not going to come seize your house. Uh, on and on we could go. Your, your neighbors are not going to talk about you. Uh, who's going to harm you if you do the right thing? If you're zealous for what is good, where's the problem? There is no problem except where there is. Because the Bible is replete with the fact that good people, Jesus is exhibit A, Job might be exhibit two or B, and we could go on and on and on. Good people suffer. So, but, so the next word, conjunction, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Excuse me. Don't mistake your suffering for a mistake. 
Don't assume that because you're suffering, God has failed you. He's just told you, quoting here in verse 12 from Psalm 34, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but you did good. So the face of the Lord is not against you. Well, if the face of the Lord is not against me, then why do I have these troubles? Why do I have these trials? Why am I suffering? Why do I have cancer? Why does my wife have cancer? My husband have cancer? My children have cancer? Why is my husband unfaithful? Why is my wife unfaithful? Why is my boss so hard to get along with? Why why is my roommate doing all that he or she's doing? And on and on we could go. Why does evil exist in my life when I am a good person, striving to be a good person? The answer is, read a little further, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, if you're going to underline a verse in 1 Peter, that ought to be on the short list right there. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that be the will of God, than for doing evil. Why why do people suffer? Well, the argument of Job's friends is because Job is a sinner. That's why Job is suffering. God rebukes that argument in Job, and he has been rebuking it ever since. But people still want to say, well, the reason that Bad things happen to good people is because they've been running a shell game on us, and in fact, they are bad. The reason bad things are happening is because they're bad. Bad people have bad results. Well, that is true, right? I mean, if you go out and do stuff that's bad, and you reap pain or sorrow or suffering or whatever, hey, buddy, that's on you. You brought it. So we want to say, well, that's true of every time there's bad, and it turns out that is false. It turns out, as it says here, verse 17, that sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer. Now, I want to tell you, friend, if you interview the culture today, you're not going to hear that. The culture is going to say, and dare I say, many people, even in this room, might be tempted to say that if I'm good, good things have to, not not might, but have to come my way. Well, I just want to encourage you, that's not true. It turns out that the Bible is replete with illustrations. We've mentioned Daniel many times, I'll mention him again. Daniel's a good man, he gets thrown into a lion's den. Why? Because he was praying. Anybody here thinks praying is a good thing? Sure. So we, here's a guy doing good things, and he gets thrown in a lion's den. You say, yeah, but he got rescued. Yeah, but the Bible is full of people whose names we don't know, who suffered even death. You can read history. Just go back 500 years, the Protestant Reformation. The only crime of some people is they believe that you should baptize believers, not infants. And they were killed. Listen to me. Killed. For one crime, believing you should baptize a believer when they're 12 or 15 or 18 instead of baptize a baby when he's eight days old. That's their only crime. 
they were killed. Why do bad things happen to good people doing good things? I don't know. I don't know all the reasons, but I know one reason. And that is because God uses the world that we live in to train us. You know, God is in the training business, friend. (laughs) It turns out that when uh, you were born again, you weren't like fully formed. Just like your physical birth. When you came here, you were 20 or 21 inch. You weighed a handful of pounds, and you were cute, allegedly. And you've been growing, maturing, developing, and that's good. If if you're 15 and you're not growing, that is to say you're still 10 physically, or 8 physically, or 7 physically, or worse, an infant physically, that's, that's clearly a problem. Nobody would expect that or want that for their child. We want our children to grow up and to become fully formed. What does God want for his children? The same thing. He wants you to be fully formed. He wants you to grow up. Just, I'll give you an illustration. Here, listen, listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Exhorting us to think of Christ. We're going to come right back to 1 Peter. But let's read these verses. 1 Peter 12, rather, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him, Christ, who endured such sinners, or rather from sinners, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now notice the argument here. Consider Jesus. He died. Then compare your suffering. You haven't died, which means you got it better than Jesus. That's the point. Verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I've made the argument. You don't discipline other people's children. Now, maybe 50 years ago people did that, but not anymore. You don't do that. You're going to go to jail if you lay a hand on somebody else's child, or if you hurt somebody else's child, or you punish somebody else's child. You don't have the authority to do that. Those children are, and you use this word in air quotes here, those children are illegitimate to you. They're not yours. You don't have a legitimate right to discipline them. But if you are their father... You not only have a right, you have a responsibility to do that. So what right does God have, what responsibility does God have to bring about the training? That's what the word discipline means. It comes from the word for gymnasium. What is God doing? What are parents doing when they're training their children? They are disciplining them. They are putting them in the gymnasium of life. And they're saying, I want you to handle this better. I want you to handle this well. I want you to grow up. You become fully formed. Now, the problem with that is that's not determined by age. You can be 20 and act like a 10-year-old. In fact, you can be a lot older than that and act like a 10-year-old. And many people do. Now, spiritually, you can be a Christian for 30 years and still have a bitter tongue. You can still have a hard heart. You can still be prejudicial, judgmental. You can still be unkind. You have no sympathy. 
You can still be all these things. You can still be busy returning evil for evil, run around like a peacock suggesting that you're a man's man, you just speak your mind. Whoop-de-doo. That's not Christian. What is God up to in your life? Same thing God's been up to since he started with you. And that is bringing you to Christ. First in salvation. And then secondly in sanctification. Bringing you to maturity. And how does he do it? Same day we, same way we do it with our children. We correct them. We discipline them. We take preemptive action. Why do we do that? Because we love them. So what's God doing in your life right now? He's busy loving you. And sometimes his love looks like suffering. Because in the wisdom of God, the will of God for your life is this. And sometimes in the wisdom of God, in the will of God, it doesn't look like this. But what's my response? How do I know the will of God? I don't know the specific will of God. I don't know what God's doing this very minute using this tactic or that tactic or that tactic or that tactic. But I do know the general will of God for my life, and that is to conform me to the image of his son. See, if you go back to 1 Peter, I close here. Notice what he says. Verse 15. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now the word holy just means to be set apart or treated as sacred. Now we, we use that word, we just sang it here with the choir. We just, we, we use that word as a, 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 you know, a Bible word, a Jesus word, a church word, as holy. But the reality is it just means to set things apart. I use the illustration this morning. Uh, church family gave me this new Bible several weeks ago, and I've been using it, and I love this Bible. I'm grateful for that gift. And this Bible is holy to me. It says right there, holy Bible. Well, this is capital H, holy. But this is also lowercase h, holy to me. It's sacred to me. It's consecrated to me. It's a gift that I treasure. So I've got a lot of Bibles. People have given me $7 Bibles. Well, I'll take that Bible and through with it and kind of lay it over to the side. I don't care if it, you know, ends up this way or that way or whatever. But when I lay this Bible down, because this is my baby. It's nice. Nice. There are a lot of things in my life that are holy. There are a lot of things in your life that's holy. And they ought to be holy. you're married your spouse better be holy if you've got children then your children better be holy sacred to you 
They're your job. They're your responsibility. They are your privilege. We could go on and on and on. Things that are holy. You have a responsibility for those things. But the exhortation of this passage is not to make your wife or your husband holy. The exhortation of this passage is to consecrate Jesus as holy. In your hearts, verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You know the only thing that won't move in your life is Jesus. Your circumstances change. When I was a young man, I didn't think about suffering much. Kind of lived fast, did fast things, a bit reckless. One of my dear friends, every time we get together, we remind each other, you know, somebody should have died back then. By God's grace, nobody did. They should have. Now that I'm an older man, I never let my children do that stuff. And I scream at my kids about letting their children do that stuff. Because life is sacred, it's precious, and the only thing that's going to last is that which is eternal. So I don't care about living reckless anymore. I care about living right right because I'm a lot closer to judgment than I've ever been and I squandered a lot of years of doing the right thing being a good man and I don't have a lot of years left but what I have I'm going to give to Jesus and I need you to help me. And I'm going to help you. And we're going to help each other. Because that's what this church is committed to. That we will do the right thing. That we will help one another live righteously and soberly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope of the return of Christ. Consecrate your life to Jesus. He's the only thing that doesn't move. You're going to get old. You're going to get tired. You're going to get lazy. You're going to get decrepit. You're going to get distracted. You're going to get bitter. You're going to suffer. And you're going to have scars. Don't let any of that shape you, friend. Anchor your life to Jesus. He's the only thing that doesn't move. I don't care if the winds are category five. I don't care if the surge is 20 feet. If your life is lashed to Jesus, he doesn't move. Let's make sure that we live like Christians and we don't mistake our suffering for a mistake. God knows what he's doing and he's doing it every minute of every day in every one of us. Let's trust him. Pray with me. Father.
how we love you, how we believe in you, how we hope in you, how we rest in you, how we thank you. I pray for your mercies upon us as we continue to pursue Christ together. Pray, Father, that our lives would reflect Christ as we should, and we should not get caught up in lesser things. Give us grace, I pray today, Lord. Thank you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.